The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast with me, Richard Lee. Me, Claire Armistead. And me, Sean Kane. This week, we look at two very different takes on cultural shifts in this ever-changing world. The Norwegian journalist Lena Volt joins us to tell us how she interviewed not just the survivor of an attempted honour killing, but also the man who tried to kill her, her father. The community would shun the entire family if he didn't act now. They would get evil looks and comments from the neighbours. Everyone he knew would think that he had failed as a father and that he had managed to protect the most precious things he had, his daughters and his honour. They would view him as a man without the ability to defend himself. And only by punishing those who had taken his honour could he prove that he was able to defend his interests again. He was broken by the whole situation. He'd been terrified of having daughters from the day he found out that he was going to be a father, always afraid that something would go wrong. Because if something goes wrong with a woman, it's always the men who have to pay the price. It's a distressing topic. And it's probably worth saying that there are some violent incidents that are difficult to hear. But first, Bernadine Ivaristo is the polymath author of fiction, poetry, essays and literary criticism. She's written for stage and radio and her eight novels include several written in verse. In Girl, Woman, Other, she tells the story of 12 very different characters. So why did this appeal to you, Claire? Well, I was I was a bit late to this novel because I make this distinction between duty books and me books. And Bernadine is one of my me writers. I've known her work for a very long time. She's the same sort of generation as me. Comes out of the same sort of fringy, theatre background. And I know everything that she writes will at least be interesting, so I don't want to rush it. The mm. downside of this is that um, sometimes the me books, i.e. the ones I most want to read sit at the bottom of the of the pile for and a very long time. subsumed with duty on the top all well, the time. Until the next holiday, and, <laughs> but by which time, and that doesn't necessarily bear an obvious relation to publication dates. So but, when you came to it, did it measure up to your expectations? Yeah, absolutely. Although, actually, quite ironically, when I first picked it up, I didn't think it was going to because I generally don't like books about theatre or journalism, things <laughs> I'm involved in. And the very first page hit me with the line, Amma's play, The Last Amazon of Dahomey, opens at the National tonight. Oh dear. <laughs> oh dear. Cuts this a little too not, close. <laughs> this is a little too close for comfort. Followed by a canter through the life of a fringe renegade writer, um, belatedly embraced by the establishment. And although I was a white critic rather than a black theatre maker, <laughs> this is very much my scene in the 80s and 90s. But um, did it pick up after that yeah no I needn't have worried because um, The Last Amazon is actually a really neat device to bring all these very disparate characters together and um, what Bernadine is really really very good at is inhabiting different voices not just different voices but the different rhythms of people so when she came to our studios at The Guardian I began by asking her to talk about how these voices related to the title of the novel Girl, Woman, Other what's with this other (laughs) <laughs> yes, well, uh, the title was a long time coming. The book took five years to write and for pretty much all of that time I was trying to think up a title. And uh, for several years I had Afro-Saxon Amazons, which I loved but nobody loved. They said it was terrible and they were thinking of the retail outlet and all kinds of things. And then I came up with Girl, Woman, Other, which I loved because I wanted a title that would sort of in a way spell out the book. I didn't want something that was symbolic or that was uh, poetic or that people would have to try and work out what the book was about. I wanted to say what it was about on the cover of the book. So Girl, Woman, Other was chosen because I have 12 different characters. I have to say primarily female, primarily black. 
and they all have their own sections in the book and I wanted to explore their lives and in fact with every character I explore their lives from childhood onwards although it doesn't isn't done necessarily chronologically the other in the book is open to interpretation. So as women, women are often othered, just women, all kinds of women. Um, Black women are most definitely othered. The book has lots of different women with different sexualities. So they're othered because of their sexualities. They're othered because of their class. Because again, the book has women of different classes. I have a non-binary figure who is also othered. And some of the women might even other each other because they're not all um, the kinds of characters who would necessarily be in agreement with each other. So so that was the meaning of it, that other would be all those things and what, whatever anybody wants to bring to it. So it starts off with Amma, who is a radical lesbian black theatre maker who has finally arrived. And where she has arrived is the, is the grey concrete citadel of the National Theatre. And she is staging a play which is called The Last Amazon of Dahomey. And this becomes the, is the one thing that unites all these very diverse characters. Tell us a bit about that. You, you were a theatre maker yourself. I was. So obviously none of the characters um, are myself, but Amma is the most like me when I was in my 20s and I was running a theatre company called Theatre of Black Women. And I was very much part of the sort of community arts, countercultural arts movement of the 1980s. Amma is somebody who has been making theatre from a black woman's perspective for some 40 years. So she's very much felt like she's on the outside, she's marginalised, she's not part of the mainstream. And finally she's made it and she's got a show showing at the National Theatre, which she feels is a show that she would have made outside of the National Theatre. So it's all kind of on her own terms. So I really wanted to explore with her the kind of movement that I came up in, which was very much a, a feminist movement, a black movement, a black women's movement, where we were creating our own art on our own terms in the 1980s. And I think it was the first time, perhaps, this was happening in this country. And interestingly enough, a friend of mine is Adjua Ando, who was also part of that movement in the 80s. Who's just directed and played Richard II. At Shakespeare's Globe. At Shakespeare's Globe. Which is completely coincidental. So she's somebody who definitely came in, you know, as part of the sort of um, community theatre arts world, who is now in the heart of the mainstream in terms of this production that she just put on. So it was really looking at... And I think I'm doing that with the book generally, where people start from and where they end up and the journeys they've taken to get there. So somebody who was very much a radical outsider suddenly appearing to be an insider, but still holding on to her radical outsider politics and sensibilities. So can you read a bit to show us where it all began? Yep, certainly. So so Amma is, it starts when she's in her 50s, the novel, and then goes back into her past. But I'll just read from chapter one. Each of the 12 characters has their own um, chapter. So Amma begins and it's chapter one. Amma is walking along the promenade of the waterway that bisects her city. A few early morning barges cruise slowly by. To her left is the nautical-themed footbridge with its deck-like walkway and sailing mast pylons. To her right is the bend in the river as it heads east past Waterloo Bridge towards the Dome of St Paul's. She feels the sun begin to rise, the air still breezy before the city clogs up with heat and fumes. A violinist plays something suitably uplifting further along the promenade. Amma's play, The Last Amazon of Dahomey, opens at the National Theatre tonight. 
She thinks back to when she started out in theatre, when she and her running mate Dominique developed a reputation for heckling shows that offended their political sensibilities, their powerfully trained actors' voices projected from the back of the stalls before they made a quick getaway. They believed in protest that was public, disruptive and downright annoying to those at the other end of it. She remembers pouring a pint of beer over the head of a director whose play featured semi-naked black women running around on stage behaving like idiots before doing a runner into the back streets of Hammersmith, howling. Amma then spent decades on the fringe, a renegade lobbing hand grenades at the establishment that excluded her, until the mainstream began to absorb what was once radical and she found herself hopeful of joining it which only happened when the first female artistic director assumed the helm of the National three years ago. After so long hearing a polite no from her predecessors, she received a phone call just after breakfast one Monday morning, when her life stretched emptily ahead with only online television dramas to look forward to. Love the script. Must do it. Will you also direct it for us? I know it's short notice, but are you free for coffee this week at all? So there we have Amma embarking on this great big adventure, which marks her arrival in some sense. Now, from that first very opening, I thought, oh, this is going to be a didactic novel because there's quite a lot of statement in that. But then it, it isn't at all a didactic novel. It's, I think that when I was thinking of what would be the adjective for it, it's exuberant. It's hugely exuberant. And I wondered how much more difficult it is to write a novel like this with so many characters juggling so many tones and atmospheres and places and generations than it is to write something that falls into its normal realist structure. Yes. Well, I think it was very challenging, actually. And also, there are so many multiple perspectives in this book. So... You can't say that it's kind of making one particular argument because there are so many different arguments. So Amma is who she is coming from the time that she came of age and obviously radical, feminist, political and so on and so forth. But then you have characters who are apolitical, who aren't interested in feminism, who are even anti-feminist. So I think multiple perspectives um, was one way in which I was able to explore a spread of primarily black British womanhood. I wanted to look at who we are in this society, not in a definitive way, because some people have said to me, oh, yes, your book is representative of black British women. I'm like, how? You know, there are, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of us. How can it be representative? These are just creations of my imagination. But I did want to look at diversity within their diversity. So... You know, I had to create a spread. So the youngest is 19. She's called Yags. She's Amma's daughter. She's a very feisty, quite entitled young woman who's at university. And then the oldest is 93. She's called Hattie. She lives in Northumberland on a farm that's been in her family on her father's side for 200 years and is the kind of person who would not even sort of figure on the register of of some of the characters in London, for example. And then there are characters of pretty much every generation in between. They also come from different cultural backgrounds. So Amma is a mixture of Ghanaian and Scottish and Nigerian. Her daughter is a mixture of her and her daughter's father is Roland, who's gay but is Gambian. And then you have characters who have Caribbean roots and other African roots and so on and so forth and some of them are mixed race as such and others aren't and some of them might have had a black grandparent so it really is about mixtures and in terms of the the project and how I embarked on it I started with one character called Carol 
who's uh, in her 20s and a banker, comes from Peckham of Nigerian parentage, ends up at Oxbridge and, and that changes her life. And then I, as I was writing her, I was thinking, okay, her mother featured. And then I thought, oh, her mother's really interesting. Let me write about Bumi, her mother. She's my favourite character of all. I love Bumi, yeah, yeah. It's really interesting. Different people like different characters in particular. So so then I wrote Bumi. But, but Carol also has a school friend called Letitia. And I found Letitia interesting because she's coming from the similar sort of background to Carol, but she has different a different route and makes different choices. So then Letitia became a character. And so the, the novel built in this way. And I think it is really challenging to write 12 characters who all are protagonists, if you like. So they're all the main figures in the novel. To write them and to bring them alive in the second person I haven't written it in the first person but it feels like you're inside their head so it feels like it's the first person to bring them alive in this way and to make them all distinct as characters and to do them justice and to explore the complexities of who they are and to not judge them as characters, but to leave that for the reader to make their own minds up about, you know, what they think of them. So, so one of the results of that is that you see somebody from the outside and then suddenly you're catapulted into their interior life, which can be quite different. Yes. So a very sad school teacher turns out to have a, a quite a tender marriage, for example. Or, you know, there, there are lots of lots of things that are unexpected once you actually get inside. Hopefully, yes, world. absolutely. So you do get... So they all have a chance to talk about their own stories and their own narratives in the way that I've written it. But then they also feature in some of the other characters' narratives. So one character will have a particular way of seeing themselves and then somebody else will usually completely undermine that. So we'll see them from another perspective or another one or two or even three perspectives. So they're in a sense, they're all unreliable narrators in that how they see themselves is not necessarily how we see them by the end of the book. And that was one of the fun things about it. So Amma is very political and quite didactic and so on. But then her daughter will say, yeah, you, you, you bemoan the gentrification of Brixton, but you've taken me into the champagne bar in the market that, you know, used to be the old Brixton market. Um, so you're a hypocrite, you know, or you were seen in the Cereal Lovers Cafe. Yeah, that, they that sell, famous cereal, the cereal where Lovers. they sell cereals for people, so for hipsters, you know. So, and I think that helps to make the char- all the characters contradictory but also complex and hopefully that makes them very real because that's who we are as people. There are a couple of underlying sad songs I think I would describe it as for example the alienation of educated children from their parents who were so were ambitious first generation immigrants who are very ambitious for their children. Oh interesting yes I think you're right so Carol who I mentioned who's Nigerian parentage and you know she's being raised by her mother because her father's dead so she does gets swept up into the elite world of Oxbridge and feels that she has to reject her roots in order to be accepted there. So when she first goes to Oxford, she's a girl from Peckham, you know what I mean? I mean, she she speaks kind of street slang and she really doesn't feel that she fits in. And her mother's the one who says, look, you do fit in there. You've got to go back, find your people, find the people you're going to be friends with. And she does that. She takes her mother's advice. And marries a white man. And marries a white man, which her Nigerian mother doesn't want her to do. Can you just read a little bit of Bumi, since I am so devoted to this character? But then <laughs> when the daughter does do what her mother says, the daughter then rejects, you know, begins to reject the mother's culture. So that's but, very distressing But also Bumi, Bumi is distressed, but she's distressed in a sort of 
in a sort of wonderfully bellicose way. She doesn't she doesn't just lie down and be miserable, does she? Yes, yeah, she's she's That's very I like her. She's very very powerful. I like Bobby too. Yeah. So um, yeah, so Carol's left Oxford. She's working as a banker, and she's living at home with her mother in Peckham. And so everything was going along quite nicely for a couple of years. Although Carol worked very late and stayed with friends most nights, she said, who lived nearer to the city. Then, one morning, at breakfast, a cup of sugarless coffee for Carol, while Bumi tucked into the delicious yam porridge her daughter loved before she went to the university, and then began to say it was as inedible as warm cement. Carol said, I have something to share. Typical English, all this sharing preamble, instead of just speaking directly about the matter at hand. I've got engaged to be married, mother. Her daughter spoke to the faded lino on the kitchen floor as if she had never seen it before, except it had been there since before she was born, to a wonderful man called Freddy. Bormi felt fireworks going off in her brain, Catherine wheels and rockets. What is this? she thought. This girl tells me she is going to marry a man she has not yet even introduced to her mamma. How long has this been going on? Bormi asked unable to swallow the lump of porridge in her mouth that really did feel like warm cement. A while, Carol replied. Oh, and he's white, English, she mumbled. We've been dating for ages and I'm really in love with him. So there you have it. So there you have it. Carol stared directly at Bumi with an expression that said, and there's nothing you can do to stop me, mother. Bumi tried to count to ten, she only got to 9.2 before jumping off her chair so fast Carol sprang up too. Why you like today like cause so much wahala for me, eh? Na play you de play, Abby. You don't spit on top your papa life. You don't spit on top your people. Which cane shame you want bring on this family? You don't disgrace me. I no sabi you at all, at all, at all. Bumi paced up and down the tiny kitchen, forcing Carol to squeeze herself into a corner. She resisted the urge to slap her daughter about the head, because no matter how naughty she was, even as a small girl, she could never beat the only person in the world who had come into creation for nine months inside her very own womb, the child who was delivered perfectly formed and crying for her mama's comforting milk at Guy's Hospital, Great Maze Pond, Waterloo, London, SE1, United Kingdom of Great Britain. Oh, I think she's so glorious. So you, when she gets emotional, she goes back into pigeon. That's yes. Nigerian pigeon yes. English, isn't it? Yes, yeah. it is. And so how did you research that? You're half Nigerian. I'm half Nigerian, but I don't speak pigeon. I don't speak Yoruba. My father was Yoruba. I asked people. It's so easy now. I sent a few emails and got people to ask. I, I actually sent them the English and then asked them to translate it for me. And so that's how I did that. Mm. But I felt that, you know, Bumi herself is somebody who comes from a culture that's completely alien to the culture she came into in Britain. You know, she has a degree in mathematics. She comes to Britain and can't get work befitting her degree because it's considered worthless. Her degree is considered worthless. Because it's from the, the University of Ibadan and not yes. the University of Oxford. Yes. So she ends up a cleaner, although she does climb out of that after a bit. But her heart really 
as it is for all of us, often is in our childhoods. And so she's grown up as Nigerian. And she's living in a very Nigerian environment, really, in Peckham. And I think that's possible in this city, that people can live in these little micro-universes. And so when she's angry, when she's irate, she does go revert back to the language of her childhood. And that's how she expresses herself, because essentially that's who she still is. Let's talk a little bit about the comedy. It's got lots of different forms of comedy, hasn't it? One, one is sort of satire, quite sort of cutting satire about the institutions that they find themselves surrounded with. But others are, you know, there's, there are lots of different forms of humour playing through this. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. I mean, I think humour is something that I have explored a lot in my work and satire is something that I've explored in previous books. But it's always a, hopefully a balance of, of, of humour and the very serious stuff. And often the humour is used, to, as, as satire is, to expose some of the sort of social issues. So, for example, when Carol goes to university, she learns to change how she speaks to fit in and there's humour in that. Yaz, Amma's daughter, who's a 19-year-old university student, I think there's humour with her because she is so entitled and she's very self-righteous and she feels herself to be very woke. And she has a good friend called Courtney, who's a farm girl, from a white farm girl from Suffolk. And Courtney actually plays her at her own game and starts talking about white privilege and who is privileged and who isn't. And surely Yaz is privileged because her, her mother's a theatre director and her father's a university professor, whereas Courtney is a farm girl and the farm is mortgaged to the bank and so on and so forth. So I think where there is room to exploit humour, I do take that opportunity and I totally delight in it. Bernadine Evaristo talking to Claire. We'll be back with Lena Volt's incredible account of researching into honour killings in Jordan after this. The Voice Lab from The Guardian. Hey, do you ever want a quick catch-up on the news headlines first thing in the morning while you're making breakfast or getting dressed? Well, if you have a Google Assistant or Google Home, we can help with that. The Guardian Briefing is an experiment from The Voice Lab which in under two minutes brings you up to speed with what you need to know about the day's top stories. We'll make sure you don't miss a thing. To listen at any time, just say, Hey Google, speak to The Guardian Briefing. Ideas of shame and honour are so deeply held, it's easy to assume they're universal. But our networked world makes it impossible to ignore the fact that different societies judge behaviour in different ways. A situation which the journalist Lena Volt confronted head-on in Jordan. There she got a tip-off about a young woman called Amina who had survived her father's attempt to kill both her and her sister Aisha, who he thought had brought some shame onto the family. Aisha didn't survive. It's a difficult and complicated subject, which makes for something of an uncomfortable listen, doesn't it, Sean? Yes, well, um, this book asks quite a lot of uncomfortable questions about what the line is between what we regard as culture and what we regard as religion. So, And even the, what the difference is between individual believers of a religion and the ideology of that religion. So as Lena points out, her the father in this story, Rahman, he says throughout the interviews that she does with him that honor killing isn't an islamic tradition it is a cultural tradition he regards it as something that is part of his culture as opposed to anything to do with religion and it's true that honor killing isn't specifically an islamic practice but we do see it 
a lot in Islamic communities and we do see it as in in surveys it's shown to be a majority Muslim on Muslim act. But you also see it in Hindu communities and in Sikh communities as well. So in this book, Lena is asking this really complicated question about what it is in that very vague sense of culture, which is a very vague and all-encompassing term that makes an honour killing permissible to groups of people. What is it that would make different groups of people think that this is an okay thing to do? And really the only common factor that she identifies when she emerges from her research and from this story really is that it is an act that is mostly committed against women by men and even when it is committed against men it is often performed by men as well so it becomes uh, it's not really just a book about religion or even a book about this family it becomes much more of a question about masculinity and about the patriarchy yeah Yeah. and particularly in her research she sort of she goes outside of jordan even though there was this very unique situation in jordan where there was a loophole that if you murdered someone and then that person was in your family and you said it was an honor killing you would get a lesser sentence that loophole has since been tightened but it made Jordan a very interesting place to consider, especially as Jordan is sort of seen as quite a liberal part of the Middle East that doesn't necessarily have huge problems with violence. Honor killing was quite a big problem there. So she just uses it as a kind of microcosm to look at a bigger problem. How does she deal with this material? Is it a kind of academic survey? Well, no, because she's she's come into it as a journalist, but it has this narrative at the heart of it about what happened to Amina and why Rahman did what he did and it sort of reads like a thriller which probably sounds really inappropriate but honestly it's a really good example of narrative non-fiction you're presented with different facts by Lena in a very sophisticated order which means you're constantly sort of questioning the motivations of the people she's talking to and you never really know where it's going to go next and it's actually quite exciting (laughs) as a book even though it's hugely uh, upsetting at times as well. So you're kind of caught between those two emotions? Yeah yeah and I I think it's actually it's a really remarkable book I don't think it's a book that will appeal to everyone there's certainly quite a lot of really horrifying violence in it and it is you know tackling male-on-female violence in a way that is really confronting but I think it's a book that's really worth reading. The book actually came out in in Norway in 2017 and it's only just coming out now in in translation in English but it, it comes with a preface that sort of acknowledges what I mentioned before about Jordan's laws, the fact that there has been a change in laws since the Norwegian uh, language version came out. And this new English version has has this new preface that sort of explains what the situation is. So when Lena joined me in the studio, I asked her to sort of outline what the situation was when she had begun researching the book and then how it has changed since. Yeah, this was my uh, inspiration for writing this book, to change some of these things. Because in Jordan, since 2016, they have changed the law that allows people who kill in the name of honor to be given a reduced sentence for such murders. So instead of getting only three to six months for killing one of your family members for honor, now you might be given as much as 15 to 20 years. And this uh, was a particular part of the law that uh, human rights activists and people who are working with these issues in Jordan have been working so hard to change for so many years now. So it's a huge step in the right direction. 
you talk in the book that there's this very strange conflict between what is written out in Jordan legal code and then also what is considered Islamic law or what is observed by communities. And it's always the case that Jordan law precedes Islamic law, that, that that's what is, is followed. But it wasn't always put into practice in that sometimes honour killings were never reported and then people would never get punishment. Or there were cases where the perpetrator of non killing was forgiven and then therefore only went to jail for a matter of months, actually. And because always these killings are done in families, it was often the case that the perpetrator was forgiven because it would be the victim's brother or father and the family would sort of rally around that person because they'd sort of saved their their honour. And there was a case that you mentioned in the book where there was a, a case in 2009 where there was a 17-year-old boy uh, who stabbed his 13-year-old sister in the head until she died because she'd taken a phone number from an unknown man. Yeah. Um, and this is only one of the stories that I've written. It's, it could be reasons as small as just wearing a mascara or opening up the door when somebody were at the door ringing the doorbell. Mm. And then there was a, um, a guy who's not a part of your family. And then people in the neighborhood, they can start talk. So often these honor killings are merely based on rumors <laughs> that these girls have done anything that uh, the family will perceive as... Uh, illegal or against uh, morals. And so how did you hear about, there's a, there's a particular case at the heart of this book, how did you hear about this case with Rahman and his two daughters? Well, I first got to know Amina and I got to know her side of the story first. And I got to know her because uh, some of the people that I've asked in Aqaba, this small uh, town that I was living in when I was uh, in Jordan, knew about that uh, this woman who spent 13 years in, in jail to be protected from her family. So they put me in touch with Amina. And uh, when I, I met Amina in the desert, uh, she told me the whole story. She told me how her father tried to kill her and how he managed to kill her older sister. And she took off her niqab, uh, and I could see the tremendous and horrible things that she has been through. Like, she had scars all over her face, and one of her eyes is merely working. And uh, so the fact that he's, she survived this honor killing is amazing. And then Rahman, her father, how did you track him down? And it's quite an inter- interesting dynamic between the two of you, in that you don't tell him straight up that you've met with his surviving daughter. Yeah, I couldn't be honest with him uh, from the beginning because I knew that if I told him that I had spoken to his daughter, he maybe he wouldn't uh, he wouldn't want to talk to me. He wouldn't be willing to tell his story. So the only way to get him to talk to me was uh, by saying to him, uh, I tried to contact him on phone and I sent him lots of messages asking him if he was willing to explain this whole thing uh, of honor killings uh, and explain why honor is so important in uh, his culture. So on the basis of the fact I told him that he was a well-respected man in the neighborhood and Mm. I really wanted to listen to his knowledge and his personal story. So this was what made him interested in talking to me. I think I came across as a bit naive and and educated to him and he was just really interested in explaining this whole thing about Islam, about uh, Jordanian culture and his family. And so he talks about this concept of honor 
And it's always sort of quite vague in that whenever you seem to push him on what this honour is and where it comes from, you know, is it just misogyny? Is it just a way of, of men controlling women? He goes, oh, it's it's just our culture. And he uses this word culture, which is always very vague. But he's also keen to say that it's not Islam. And you are also keen to say that honour killing is not sort of something that's endorsed in Islam. And it's one of those things that I've always struggled with in terms of that disconnect between what is a religion and what isn't a religion. And I've always struggled with the idea that a religion is just its holy book and it's not the actions of the people that follow its religion. How did you sort of come to terms with that? Because I would contend that it's sort of a a fallacy to say that it's not part of Islam because it's not in the Quran, when it is very much a lived reality for people that are involved in Islam and live in Islamic cultures. I completely agree with you. It's, it's so difficult to separate culture and religion. But the thing is, many of the people who kill in the name of honor, they blame re- religion and they say that this is based on the Quran and, and the teaching of Muhammad. And uh, so what I did to understand this better was I contacted uh, the imam in Amman and I tried to get in touch with the people who have studied uh, the Quran and Islam and and I asked them, is there really a connection between honor killings and Islam? And what they said is uh, the people who, who blame religion for these kinds of killings, they have misinterpreted the, the Quran. They haven't read the holy book correctly. Because there, as you said, there is nothing in the Quran saying that you should kill your own daughter or your sister for reasons as they do in, in Jordan. But it's um, also something that happens in other communities as well. Like it's uh, in Jordan, you have around 20 honor killings each year. But if you look to India, if you look to Pakistan, culture based more on the Hindi values or even Christianity, you will find honor killings. So it's something that has a lot more to do with uh, the patriarchy than, than religion. Mm. And it is all about uh, this... Uh, thought of men controlling women and using violence and threats to do that. And there, there is that distinction in when I think you're speaking to Rahman who sort of explains that there is this pressure on men to sort of the biggest thing that they can preserve in their life is honour and the best thing that women can preserve is their purity mm-hmm. and often those two things can clash because if a woman doesn't preserve her purity the men in their life can sort of view that as well now Therefore, that's impacted my honor. Yeah. Can you imagine, like, uh, having to bear the responsibility of all your siblings? Yes. Uh, so it's really like that. It's the way that women live and, and how they uh, act is something that has to do with the whole family. Mm. The whole family is involved in every part of their life. So it's a pressure both on the on the male members of the family, but, of course, also on, on the woman. Yeah. And uh, this is something that we see in, in particularly when these cultures uh, come to other countries, for instance, as in my country, as in Norway, we see that there is really, it's so problematic for some people in these cultures to live in that double cross-culture where you have to be really modern and westernized and only think about yourself 
on one hand and on the other hand it's all about the family and traditional values. That's really an interesting part of it in that on the face of it you could just read it as well this is purely misogyny and it is the case that so often the victims are are women and even just looking at Rahman we've got a man who killed his mother when he was 11 then killed his daughters as well or tried to kill one of them and killed the other but it also does say something really painful about masculinity and just how a man that seems pleasant and rational and reasonable when you meet him could be so driven to commit such an act of violence in the name of sort of preserving honour which is tied up with masculinity. It's very much a book about women and the, the lot that they suffer, but it's also very much a book about men too. Oh, definitely. And that's why I've chosen to include both sides of the story. It was. It has been really important for me to have both the perpetrator and the victim side of the story because I think if you want to change these practices, we really need to understand the root causes. And in the beginning when I was talking to Raman, you know, I, I was so angry. I, I was just looking for revenge. I really wanted to see the pain in his eyes. But I never got to that point. And uh, it made me even more eager to try to understand the psychological uh, reasons. And after talking to him so many years, uh, at one point, I do agree with him that he, he was a victim when he was forced to kill his own mom when he was a child. Mm. But then again, he had the opportunity so many years later to make another choice, to choose differently. But mm. he because he didn't have anyone to talk to after he was forced to kill his mom when he was a child because he didn't ha get any help, no psychological help, no one to support him, then he just felt that he didn't have any other choices. And that's part of the heartbreaking thing that he does tell Amina that what he did and then that in turn does feed into what ends up happening to her and, and her sister because they are then so afraid by what will happen to them because they know he's got previous. So for a lot of the book, Rahman doesn't know that you know that he tried to kill both of his daughters and ended up killing one of them. But when you do approach him and say, well, actually, I know and I've spoken to one of your daughters, he reacts very badly. But you do end up getting to talk to him and have him explain why. Can you sort of explain what, what his reasoning was when he came back to you to sort of explain himself? I think it's best to maybe read that section of my um, of my book where he explains uh, with his own words why he decided to kill his own daughters. What kind of a man are you? Nora had said repeatedly for the last month. Your son is going to grow up in disgrace. Your daughters are mocking you. You have to do something. In the end, Rahman simply couldn't stand any more nagging. It was either his wife or his daughters, he thought, as he lay in bed one night, exhausted but unable to sleep. He had enough. He had been commanded his entire life, controlled by expectations, pressured by his family, his clan or the society. What kind of honor was there even left to defend? He had been a broken man from the start. Yet he wondered how his children could betray him this way. What had he done to deserve such daughters? Aisha had lied to him, been sneaking out at night, meeting someone before she was married. Amina had known it the whole time and had not said anything. She'd help Aisha cover up the lies. Both of them were just as guilty. Both of them deserved the same punishment. He asked himself whether there was a way out, whether there was another solution.
but he couldn't see any other alternative. The community would shun the entire family if he didn't act now. They would get evil looks and comments from the neighbors. Everyone he knew would think that he had failed as a father and that he had managed to protect the most precious things he had, his daughters and his honor. They would view him as a man without the ability to defend himself. And only by punishing those who had taken his honor could he prove that he was able to defend his interests again. He was broken by the whole situation. He'd been terrified of having daughters from the day he found out that he was going to be a father, always afraid that something would go wrong. Because if something goes wrong with a woman, it's always the men who have to pay the price, the men who have to act. He had feared that a day would like this would come, that he would be pushed into a situation where the only thing to do was to kill his own daughters. Had it not been for society's expectations, he wouldn't have needed to do this, he thought. Then he might have been able to just lock them up in the house until someone married them, or they eventually died alone. But that wasn't really a fair choice, though. Killing them was the only thing he could do. It was better to sacrifice two daughters than a whole family. And it was just like his father used to say. A drop of dirty milk is enough to destroy a whole bottle of good milk. Part of the really the, the amazing element of this book is that when you first met with Rahman and you're talking to him and you know what Amina has told you about his motivations for killing her sister Aisha, the fact that she was pursuing a romance with another woman and you are a gay woman and you were meeting with this man that had killed his daughter because he believed that this was a sin. That's kind of an amazing coincidence in my eyes in that you you didn't go in knowing that 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 was an element of this and that that was his motivation for doing this. When you learned that, how did that feel? Well, it's also such an unusual story because in in Jordan it's not very common to kill uh, women who are gay. Like it, it often happens with with men, uh, or they are forced to commit suicide. But I have not read many cases where where women are, are killed by the family for reasons as being gay. But when I found out, it just made the whole story more personal to me, mm. really. Like because we were sitting there on this first meeting and he was touching in the wrist of my hand and saying, if I found out that you were gay, you know, then, then I would cut your hands off. And I was looking at him and he was looking deep into my eyes and he said, uh, but I, I know you're not because I always see that in the scumbag's eyes. Right. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, maybe not, maybe, maybe not this time, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Might have got it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> were you frightened? Uh, not uh, of Rahman, because for me, you know, uh, being uh, a westernized woman and uh, and coming from a different country, it was never Rahman's responsibility to to kill me and to restore the family's honor, because mm. he's not a part of my family. Mm. So I, I haven't been afraid of the perpetrators that I've spoken to. Mm. Really, I haven't. And you haven't had any contact with him or, or Amina since the, the book came out? No, I haven't. I, I tried to send the the last transcripts to Raman because I really wanted to have his feedback, but mm. uh, I haven't heard anything back from him. And with Amina as well, because she was—you sort of last saw her in the desert. You're taken to her, and her location is somewhat disguised to keep her safe. She was quite disquieted by the idea that you were going to speak to her father. 
but she has this line that she uses which you refer back to often which is uh, that women always lose it, it doesn't really matter what the motivations of anyone in this situation is that the women always lose given the situation has changed a bit now that there are some sort of formal legal barriers to this happening that will hopefully discourage people that the cost is now too high you don't just get a few months in prison you will get years are you hopeful that things have changed do you think that it will actually have a lasting change or do you think that this sort of culture that Rahman talks about is just too ingrained I truly hope that things are changing in, in Jordan and also elsewhere but I think it's a process that takes time and I think it is important that uh, these cultures change from within so they do it themselves so it's not something that is forced upon them from the outside and there's so many powerful women in, in Jordan working to, to change these laws and to change these practices. So I'm really hopeful and, and I think that uh, things are going in the right direction. That was the very brave Lena Volt, thanks to her and to Bernadine Evaristo. Inside an Honor Killing is with Greystone Books and Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Evaristo is with Hamish Hamilton. Both are out now. As the Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Tracy K. Smith steps down as US Poet Laureate, she joins us to talk about her career so far and offers some advice for the UK's new Poet Laureate, Simon Armitage. As always, do contact us on Twitter, at Guardian Books, or leave a comment on the podcast page. And please do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, from me, Richard Lee. Me, Sean Kane. And me, Claire Armistead. And our producer, Susanna Tresillian. Thanks for listening and goodbye. great podcasts from The Guardian. Just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.